0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the James Ford Bell Foundation. My name is Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum and pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. These forums have been broadcast since 1980 to bring to the public voices of conscience addressing key ethical issues in our society. Today's speaker is David Rockefeller, Jr., Chair of Rockefeller Financial Services, a trustee of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, a member of the Brookings Institution, and the Council on Foreign Relations. A graduate of Harvard University with a degree in history and literature, Our speaker has been described by Peter Collier and David Horowitz as subtle and tactful. In their book on the Rockefeller family published in 1976, Collier and Horowitz offered insight into the character of David Rockefeller Jr. when they quoted him as saying that music was a central part of his life. It is the thread of my life, he said, In a way, it is soul food enough, but whether or not it takes care of the sense of responsibility is another question. The big issue for me is how I spend my life," he said. Since that time, Mr. Rockefeller appeared on the front page of Fortune magazine. The article about a new generation of Rockefellers, called Today's Speaker, a bearded, articulate, music-loving Rockefeller who has taken on the leadership of his generation. In a piece in the New York Times Magazine, Mr. Rockefeller spoke about the peculiar personal dynamics of being a member of the Rockefeller family. He spoke in a way that reminds all of us to claim our own individual responsibility within our own personal limitations. He said, There certainly have been times in my life when it was more difficult than fun to be wealthier than most of my peers. But I think that was an adolescent problem and to some extent a problem in my twenties. I call it the beautiful woman syndrome. I've often had conversations with beautiful women, he said, who share one important thing in common, a mistrust that people like you for your exterior as opposed to your interior. That's a great challenge for anyone with trappings that could overwhelm the sense of the individual, he said. There's one thing about singing, he said, there's no way anyone else can take credit or blame for the voice except yourself. When someone on a television interview asked, said to him that it must be wonderful to be able to do anything you want Mr. Rockefeller replied, it's not true. I could never be a soprano. As vice chair of the Alaskan Conservation Foundation, Mr. Mr. Rockefeller has found how to answer the question about how to spend his life by committing his voice to protect and sustain the endangered ecosystem of Alaska. His topic today is Alaska, preserving our last frontier. It is a great privilege and pleasure to welcome to the Twin Cities and to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Mr. David Rockefeller, Jr.
1: Thank you, Gordon Stewart, very much for that uh, dangerous introduction. In the late 1890s, Edward Harriman, the railroad magnate, led an expedition to a recently formed state called Alaska. This steamship adventure opened the consciousness of such great figures as Fuertes, the bird painter, Curtis, the photographer, and Dahl, the paleontologist, and reconfirmed the dedication of John Muir, the conservationist, to the great natural beauty of that vast northern chunk of our continent. Those were the days when America's sense of entitlement was perhaps at its peak. The growing power of the industrial age, the Spanish-American War, America, the land of opportunity and irresistible relocation site for thousands of European immigrants. California was still a lightly settled frontier. It was just three years ago this past summer when I and several others organized and led 200 people on another coastal expedition to Alaska by sail rather than steam in order to treat ourselves to that still breath-catching sub-Arctic parade of ice and spruce and tundra and what an indelible impression it left upon us. The immense scale of the landscape, the omnipresent glacial ice and watery runoff, the long lingering summer light which had the impact of intravenous coffee. I personally had the luxury of being in Alaska for 10 weeks that summer as part of a mini sabbatical during my 50th year, and what truly surprised me was the degree to which the landscape took hold of me and wouldn't let go. Three years later, it still has not. Perhaps it awoken me what E.O. Wilson calls the biophilia syndrome, which asserts mankind's genetically driven yearning for contact with nature. Which brings me to the title of these remarks, Alaska, preserving our last frontier. As I think about how man's relationship to nature has changed since the Harriman voyage in the late 19th century, I realize how differently we might even have understood those words a century ago. Preserving our frontier. Let me take them in reverse order. Certainly, we have altered our sense of what is frontier in this century. Spaceships defy the gravitational and atmospheric frontiers. ICBMs and industrial pollutants defy the political frontiers. Viruses defy both the medical and technological ones. Trade and treaties melt the legal and economic ones, albeit in erratic fashion. Similarly, what was historically understood to be ours, has also been challenged, both philosophically and legally, by indigenous people who have revived their ancient claims to the land and waters, originally not substantiated by Western-style paper, of course, challenged in a different fashion by this century's immense growth in population and revolutionary changes in long-distance travel and communication. What used to be ours simply by reason of geographic proximity may now be yours, too, simply by reason of accessibility and overwhelming demand. And in the case of Alaska, where nearly two-thirds of the state lands are managed by federal agencies, there is perhaps a responsibility for us to treat what is theirs as ours. Finally, what was in the 19th century considered preserving might have had more of a museum connotation, as in preserve in isolation for visitor inspection. Whereas today, we have come to a more, I think, organic understanding of the term preservation in which we understand that nature and indeed cultures cannot effectively be preserved separate from their context. Thus, we now speak not only of species preservation, but ecosystem protection. And we don't limit our focus on ancient cultures to the humidification of ritual objects but to the protection if not revival of entire languages and mores and active practices in which those ritual objects play a part. Alaska in summary is a large and beautiful place where these issues of protection, ownership, and boundaries are particularly interesting and urgent. I hope it is already clear why I believe that it's not irrelevant for me to be talking about these matters from a Middle American urban Christian sanctuary over public radio airwaves to an audience dominated by, as Alaskans call us, lower 48ers. In a word, the earth is a precious place. And even as we have the collective power now to destroy it, we must take pains to preserve it and its inhabitants in all their magnificent manifestations. In studying the Harriman papers, I tried to understand how our view of the frontier has changed in our century. How it is that entire villages of totems which were gathered up and shipped to natural history museums then are now in part being returned to the villages as active evidence that these cultures endure, and, by contrast, how it is that the great swatches of natural parklands which were far-sightedly protected in Alaska and elsewhere during the twentieth century are now subject to such intense visitation that nature is having to be protected from nature lovers. But before I proceed Let me dip back in time to July 4th, 1899, when the Harriman Group was celebrating Independence Day on Kodiak Island, Alaska. Mr. Harriman, just back aboard the steamship with his prize, a Kodiak bearskin, his 150 shipmates, largely from New York and California, were contemplating this faraway place of indigenous, then Russian, and finally, American dominion. A certain Charles A. Keeler, director of the Museum California Academy of Sciences, produced for the occasion a 4th of July ode, 1899 it was called, in which he, in a tongue distinctly not of our time, began to challenge the prevailing expansionist sentiment I will, with apologies to Mr. Sheeler, deliver a few excerpts from his ode. Is this the wilderness, these green sward hills, these wastes of lupin, windflowers and of rose? these slopes of heather by the mountain rills, o'erhung by skies of gold through day's slow close? where one long lotus dream obscures all human woes. And then a little further. And we who tarry here this festal day, July 4th, still see the flag of home wave proud on high, still find a welcome on our seaward way, for where the flag waves, home and friends are nigh. The eagle flaps his wings and makes exultant cry. His cry his liberty, as heaven's high dome, he scales on peerless wing, and we in kind shout back our answer as we westward roam. And then finally, we who have failed to rule a wilderness, now preach of liberty in tropic seas. Forsooth, our sway the orient horde shall bless, while politicians fatten at their ease. O oh Lord must our dear sons be slain such men to please? And then it finishes. Well, as you can see, the language shifts over a century, but the issues remain remarkably the same. It is said that Mr. Harriman had more than one purpose for visiting Alaska that year, to get his bear, to go on a rest cure, to contribute to the furtherance of science, and it was rumored to explore the feasibility of building a railroad bridge across the Bering Straits to Russia. Mind you, it takes a big whip to tame an Arctic tiger. He did not succeed, as you know. Nearly a 100 years later, Americans have built a road to Alaska, an airline bears its name, large coastal ferries and cruise ships work their way there from Seattle and Vancouver, Alaska is accessible. And the double mythology of wilderness on the one hand and natural resources for the taking on the other continue to present a challenge to Alaska's half-million residents and to us. So how can we, you and I, assist in promoting balanced consideration for three interactive but often competing elements, the economy of Alaska, the environment and great natural beauty of Alaska, and its human cultures, indigenous and immigrant. Before addressing this question directly, let me draw on some late 20th century words of another amateur poet who wrote A 4th of July Ode, 1991, in response to Mr. Sheeler, a poem which was produced and presented during our sailing expedition from Ketchikan to Kodiak Island. 4th of July Ode, 1991. If Paul Bunyan had an Arctic cousin, he would be here, spearing great halibut from the sea knocking back drums of high-stream water and bergy bits, body-surfing the tsunamis, blow-drying in willowaws. Here would be the polar bunion, towed along in a sea chariot by spouting orcas, eagles nesting in his hair. Alaska, where we the tiny men do vanish as mountain goats in the alpine snow. Yet we would make ourselves known in successive sallies against fur seals and Badarka people, clinkets and their customary markings. We would, like raging bunions, carry off Alaska's difficult gold, riparian timber, torrents of oil. We would strut before bears and bring them lurching and coughing onto their blunt nostrils with our tiny man's machinery the old people found another way to manage being tiny. They followed the streams and spoke gratefully to the deer. They sought salmon, seriatim, with the bear. The old people would send missionaries to us, but are we free to accept? End of Ode. Each year, I return several times to Alaska, trying to deepen this lower 48ers understanding of how the economy, the ecology, and human culture can be protected and promoted. The challenges are, of course, enormous. Just take the question of oil. More than 90% of Alaska's economy is oil-derived, yet oil is both subject to huge swings in world price and it isn't a tidy substance to handle. Just to see for myself, I visited the oil fields of Prudhoe Bay in the depths of the Arctic winter last year. This is truly a modern technological miracle, perhaps as wondrous as a Bering Sea Railroad Bridge, where it's ironically, though reassuringly, not possible to see any oil. I also recently visited the port of Valdez at the other end of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, runs from Prudhoe to Valdez South, where the Exxon Valdez picked up its cargo in March of 18... Uh, sorry, of March of 1989 and dumped it a few miles away at Bly Reef in Prince William Sound, the rest you know. Does this well-known disaster mean that oil exploration is incompatible with preserving the Alaskan environment or incompatible with the lifestyles of those indigenous and other people who derive their livelihood from the seals and salmon and sea otters which live in the waters of Prince William Sound? Should the taking of sea otters themselves be taboo? Should the entire area be converted instead to a tourist-based economy, and should lodges and theme parks be introduced? Do kayakers perhaps disrupt the sea lion rookeries? Is there such a thing in the logging business as benign clear-cutting? And how does one respond to the Alaska Native corporations, which, in the face of declining revenues from the state's oil industry, and uncertain harvests of salmon permit their own wooded hillsides to be clean shorn. Well, this isn't a place here today to explore such a dizzying calculus in detail, nor do I hold myself out as an expert in the biological or economic sciences. But I do have several observations on the process by which I hope the discussion will proceed. I had hoped to be able to announce, actually, at this moment, that uh, uh, the name of a new governor of, of Alaska, but um, the latest bulletin says that uh, the two individuals uh, who were closest are in an essential dead heat, and um, Tony Knowles, who was the individual that I was supporting because I thought he had a, a more balanced view of the situation. Uh, is about 250 votes ahead and there's something like 2,000 votes that won't get counted till early December. I guess I imagine them coming in by icebreaker and dog sled. So we won't know about the governorship but we just go on. First of all, I cannot imagine a successful outcome for Alaska economically, environmentally, or culturally which does not take into account all three elements in the equation and which does not proceed from a plan spearheaded by the state, they will know the governor, I hope, soon, but assisted by the legitimate federal agency interests and supported by other national private interests, including our own personal interest in preserving a few places on this earth where nature is allowed to have the upper hand. Which brings me to my second point, namely that there is something intrinsically precious, not just valuable, but precious in the natural state of our Earth ship. And that if we conquer nature at every turn, we ourselves in fundamental ways, physical and metaphysical, will cease to exist. Finally, and linked to this last point, In a world where our human differences threaten to eradicate our human progress, I believe it is essential to find common ground, no pun intended, on which we can build relationships with those of very different cultures and habits of mind. I believe there are two areas of common ground which should be especially actively engaged herein. The arts. I know the tradition of singing here in the Twin Cities is... Such an amalgamating force and very active, and the natural world, the earth, if you will. As we experience nature together, gardens, storms, birds, volcanoes, we have greater hope of seeing ourselves in right relationship to what is mysterious, exhilarating, terrifying, or just plain beautiful in the world external to ourselves, including the world of other cultures. To observe the master fisherman, the green-thumbed planter, or the silent tracker, is to discover something profound about the delicate interplay between fauna and flora, or man and beast and nature, which connects our feet to the ground and our spirit to each other. Churches aspire to this goal as well, of course. But office buildings, where I spend altogether too much of my time, just don't cut it. So, how does this relate to Alaska and to us, non Alaskans? Even the 10 or 15,000 lakes of Minnesota, I have to admit, cannot hold a paddle to Alaska's watery, icy, majestic terrain. Alaska, I repeat, is a precious place, and it does belong both literally and figuratively to all of us. Just as the British, and more recently, people all over the world, have struggled to save the Serengeti of remote East Africa, I believe it is our responsibility and wonderful opportunity to participate in preserving Alaska, where nature still has the upper hand. How to do this? There are foundations active right here in the Twin Cities which have joined the Alaskan cause in philanthropic fashion. And the 200 members of our 1991 expedition founded a specialized donor vehicle called the Sale Alaska Fund to address the triple variables of ecology, economy, and culture there. I'm also familiar with the Alaska Conservation Foundation which is an Alaska community foundation that supports these issues. And perhaps you yourselves are already helping by just being good enough to listen to me in this church today. But if you've never been to Alaska, please just go see for yourself. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Mr. Rockefeller, for reminding us of this precious place and for calling us to, to cherish it and to do what we can to preserve it and to take into account the three dimensions of Alaskan life. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker, Mr. David Rockefeller, Jr., is speaking on the topic of Alaska, preserving our last frontier. Today's co-sponsor is the James Ford Bell Foundation. While the ushers collect the questions from the live audience here in the sanctuary, let me thank the Twin Cities Law Firm of Lindquist and Venom for making possible this radio broadcast. Mr. Rockefeller, if I can ask you to return to the podium, and I will uh, ask you the first question and then others from the audience. What consequences do you see from yesterday's election for the role of the federal government in protecting the Alaskan environment? What do you expect from the new Congress, and what would you like to see?
1: Okay. I haven't had much time to analyze the elections, but I think the broad sweep uh, suggests certainly as characterized by many of the Republican victors that this is a a victory for smaller government. Um, And uh, I guess the question then would be where will government get smaller and what impact that will have on the environment and if it has, uh, if there are reduced dollars for it protecting the environment, uh, will the private citizens come forward and replace those dollars or perhaps treat uh, the in- environmental protection uh, in-, in some other way? Um, I-, I feel uneasy, I guess I would have to say, about the implications, but I think they'll have to play out the wonderful thing about the natural environment is that uh, it really does impact us across political boundaries and there are very few of us I think who don't appreciate um, the great importance of the natural world and certainly there will be those of us who will be bringing that message to both Washington and other, other places in the future as we've done in the past.
0: What role does the Council on Foreign Relations, of which you are a member, play in environmental issues in this country?
1: Too little. Um, A small group of us about five years ago uh, attempted, and finally successfully, to make the argument that you really could not deal with geopolitical issues, the primary concern of the Council. and economic issues unless you were dealing with environmental issues. And I'm glad to say that uh, since that time, uh, there have been a number of speakers and studies who have focused both primarily on the environment, uh, focused on the environment and the connectedness of environmental issues to uh, political disputes and economic growth.
0: One person asks, I have heard that nature has cleaned up the oil spill. Is that true?
1: Um, By that, I presume the questioner is is talking about the uh, the spill in Prince William Sound. Um, Superficially, it appears to be remarkably true. Um, I guess I visited in 91 for the first time and then back again in May of this year. And superficially meaning... You can't see oil on the beaches and on the surface of the water unless you have a guide to take uh, you to a place. Um, What I think is the more difficult and, of course, important, at least as important, environmental question is where did it go In what concentrations, what impact has it had on the bottom uh, of the ocean where it would naturally uh, uh, sink and which is the... Early part of the food chain uh, uh, for the for the fish, the feeding ground, if you will. What's going on there? And there's some disturbing um, statistics with regard to the health of the seals on the one hand, and the salmon runs on the on the other. Uh, I can tell you there's a huge debate about this, particularly because the Exxon Corporation, with which our family has had some uh, relationship over the years is um, you know, it continues to be in in court uh, faced with the question of just how well the cleanup went I think uh, after an initial public relations um, uh, failure to my in my view of, of exxons they did really do uh, a remarkable job of attempting to clean up and whether it's successful is the big question.
0: I need to remind uh, or inform those on the radio listening audience that uh, you may call in a question by calling 332-3421. We invite you to do that. Another question, how do the two prospective governors in Alaska view the balance of these three variables of economy, environment, and culture?
1: Um, I'm really more familiar with uh, the Knowles posture and not so much with uh, uh, Knowles opponent, but I was impressed by his candidacy because of his of his balance on those issues and my acquaintances... Uh,
0: uh, how, how does he see those, those three in relationship to one another?
1: I think that from what from what I know, and I don't have detailed knowledge on this, he uh, of course understands that the future of Alaska has got to be an economically secure future. and the future of Alaska has to be a, a future in which the people who live there want to be there and thrive. Uh, up against that, what he also sees is that you have these twin treasures, Of natural resources in great abundance and natural beauty in equal if not greater abundance and I think what he will be faced with and I don't frankly know how he will manage this uh, is to what extent to Alaskans can build up the tourist industry uh, to supplant the funds which are being uh, which are diminishing and will diminish further over time from oil without overcrowding the very natural resource that I was talking about before. And I think that's the great challenge. I haven't seen his plan on that.
0: Here's a lighter question. If you had to be, I think it is, if you had to be marooned on an Arctic island, which music would you take along?
1: Oh, that's that's great. (laughs) That's great. How much can I take, first of all? (laughs) I want to have a lot. Um, well, I, I really, I've spent 30 years singing the music of Bach, and I suppose Bach being a good Lutheran, that's a good thing to say in parts of the city. Uh, um, and, and certainly that, I would start with the staple of Bach. I would also have jazz. I would have, uh, I would have certain forms of Brazilian uh, samba. Um, I would, uh, boy, that's a hard question. I think, you know, that I might not get to take more on this marooned island if I landed there quickly. I better stop.
0: Concerning clear-cutting, how long before new growth can be replenished? That is, does it take longer in Alaska than it does in the lower 48?
1: That's what I understand. I mean, you you know living in a northern climate here, that growth and warmth are intimately related to each other. And uh, I think, uh, of course, Alaska is also a huge state, both east and west and north and south. And so uh, you have to consider that a part of Alaska is a, in a, has a temperate rainforest and another part has ice on its shores all but one month per year. There's no question that the growth period for the forest is long. Um, and that the rejuvenation rates are are, are slower than they are uh, in the south and therefore that's a very, very important issue and there is some wonderful old growth uh, material there both in the southeast and up along the, uh, uh, the rest of the Gulf of Alaska until you get to Kodiak actually.
0: Thank you. To your way of thinking What is the best way for the average person to see Alaska? Hmm.
1: I don't know who the average person is. Uh, Let me give a couple of answers. Um, Certainly, I think the most um, comfortable, lowest risk way would be to be on a cruise ship because you have your cabin there and you get off from time to time and those ships have proliferated enormously. That isn't the most intimate uh, way to see uh, Alaska. You're usually very high off the water. Your experience of the, of the breaching whales and orcas uh, and uh, other beasts of the sea is going to be a little more remote. Um, can't get up as close to the glaciers as you might in a smaller uh, vehicle. So I think it would be worth not only seeing it that way but in small planes, um, and as much as possible on foot and in touch with nature. I'd try all three
0: of them. One person asks, wouldn't a national energy policy leaning toward renewable fuel sources be the best way to protect the Alaskan environment?
1: That's a double-edged sword for Alaska. If it happened too abruptly and if Alaska's 90% depended upon oil revenues, there would be such a decline in the state's economy that that might lead to some other very undesirable results. Um, if there were a slower uh, move toward renewable energy sources, however, and the state had the opportunity to plan whether um, to increase its tourist industry, to find ways to uh, maintain sustainable harvests in, in the wood products and fishing industries, then I think that, that kind of balanced approach uh, might be the most workable, but I think one has to see it as working out over a period of time.
0: What is the role of philanthropy in the 21st century in focusing attention on issues like this? Um,
1: well. I'm very pro-philanthropy. I think that uh, it, is, it is intimately associated with the great American spirit of uh, altruism and thoughtful giving. Uh, many people don't know that philanthropy is um, not quite exclusively, but remarkably singularly an American uh, form of behavior. Um, you know, there are all kinds of philanthropy uh, and philanthropists just as there are all kinds of politicians. So it would be, uh, it, it, it would be naive to be in favor of, of everything here, but I, I think that philanthropy can and should have a very important role um, in Alaska and in environmental concerns. I think that um, philanthropists and foundation have an opportunity uh, to, to think about issues that are complex, such as the ones that I put forward today, uh, to bring in professional staff of the uh, professional foundations uh, to consider these issues, and to present really a, a third force, if you will, in the, in the culture, uh, in our lives, not just government, not just business, but another perspective, um, which probably shares something in common with the academic, and something in common with the um, with the advocate, kind of a straddling of advocacy and and academic research, and that's where I think philanthropy can be at its best: thoughtful, independent look at serious issues that might otherwise be dealt with only by those concerned about re-election or bottom line.
0: One person would like for your comment um, as to your opinion about uh, uh, Russia wanting Alaska back.
1: (laughs) I did see that. I think they've got enough problems without... uh... (laughs) I saw that Mr. Yeltsin, I guess it was... uh... No, it wasn't Yeltsin, it was the... What was his name? Zirinovsky, thank you. We should switch this. I should get to start asking you questions now.
0: (laughs) How important do you see the UN to the protection of the environment?
1: Um, Well, I think that after the Rio meeting several years ago, uh, the United Nations both developed a much greater respect for the non-governmental organizations, including philanthropies, and took upon itself um, to, make, uh, to make statements regarding the importance of the environment within world peace and, and justice um, that really irrevocably puts it on the map as a major instant, international institution that will put its weight uh, behind environmental protection. How that will play out I think uh, is uh, is a question. Unfortunately, the United States itself, uh, particularly during the last administration, uh, was kind of dragging its feet on uh, joining the international protocols that um, promised to give us uh, better protection of the environment. Uh, but I'm very optimistic that the United Nations, which as you probably know is uh, celebrating its 50th year next year and thinking right now about its future that environmental issues will be very high on its agenda and uh, although it is much distracted by the the wars which have become more evident or broken out since the end of the Cold War um, I am convinced it will continue to be concerned about and devote important um, energies and resources to environmental protection?
0: Here's, here's an interesting one. I would make the argument, says one member of the audience, that preserving must become protection. I would like to see the US Navy replace the Coast Guard in this effort. I lived on Kodiak when they had this job. They were, by historical and technical prow- prowess, Better equipped to process, uh, to, pro- to, to possess their territory and protect it. And then there's a parenthesis Go Navy. What do you think about that?
1: That's great. Sounds like the football season. Um, I've actually been to that Coast Guard station on Kodiak, and it's an impressive one, and it has a very big area to cover. Um, let me comment about the, the issue of protecting the seas because I think I probably can't take on seriously if it was meant that way, the the issue of Navy versus Coast Guard, but one of the big issues uh, for Alaska and all coastal territories in the world for that matter has been the uh, protecting the ecosystem of food fish and indeed of the entire ocean and oceans themselves. Being a New Englander, I'm very Uh, conscious of this because the George's Bank as you've been probably reading has been all but shut down and the town of Gloucester which is the great fishing access port to the George's Bank is uh, devastated Um, in Alaska actually in Kodiak Island uh, there were many boats that went out of business and, and people who went out of business when the king crab industry suddenly crashed almost no warning I think we, we know a few things, but we don't yet know all that we need to know to understand why these um, uh, great drops in fisheries are happening. But one thing really is clear, and I think it, it does get back, I hope, to this question, and, and that is that very large ships, um, factory ships, bottom draggers, and others, have capacity these days to take in, often indiscriminately, uh, fish, at a rate that was never possible before. And in the process, particularly if they're moving their equipment along the bottom, to disrupt uh, large, large parts of the ecosystem that is the base for the fishing industry. I won't say these things are done on purpose to do so. In fact, in the long term, it's, it's very much against self-interest for fishermen to be destroying the base of life for the fishing industry. Um, but there's some shorter term interest at work here. It is true that some of uh, the most egregious um, examples of uh, creating what's called bycatch, which is the unintentional catch that then usually gets thrown back dead in the, in the water, or of bottom disruption have been by foreign vessels um, poaching in or near to American waters. I won't say that uh, U.S. registry vehicles haven't been involved themselves. Um, but this has created, our technology once again has enabled us to do things that are such wi- have such wide-sweeping implications before we understand the, in this case, very serious implications as we're coming to understand of, um, of these actions, and um, I do believe we need a world policing agency. I don't actually think the US Navy or Coast Guard ought to be alone on this, which uh, does prevent the despoiling of the ocean uh, harvests. Um, it, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, uh, because the ocean is um, offshore, everybody's, and the rules are very, very uh, ill-defined. Congress is attempting and the UN is attempting to draw them more tightly, Uh, but we really have uh, a group of of sea bandits uh, out there, and not just in American waters, who are taking advantage of the the lack of regulation and and, and our failure as a As a world politic, to come to grips with who owns, what regulations there should be, and what punishments there should be for failing to respect the great um, uh, mother water uh, ecosystem.
0: Just a quick information question and then one last question. This is from a, a radio listener. How much of Alaska is publicly owned, and how much is private? of the public land, how much is available to purchase?
1: (laughs) I can't tell whether that's an interested purchaser there or not. Uh, The the quick answer is very little is private. Um, My memory is that it's something like 65% federally managed, another 25% state, um, and then a fairly large proportion in native and native corporation hands and in addition to that a very modest percentage something like 5 to 10% it seems to me is in in private hands
0: thank you a couple of questions uh, one from one of the students here in the sanctuary they're in the same vein and it's the kind of the area that I'd like to to leave us with first question is uh, and, and just to, to uh, read their questions and then give you time to respond. The student asks what made you so interested in preserving the environment? How long have you been interested in this? Another person asks, is your commitment to Alaska the answer to the question, how will I spend my life?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, on the first one, I was fortunate to be brought up part of the time in my early years on a farm. And so it was direct contact with the things of a farm. And I read books about farming and uh, about living in wilder places than certainly I did. It was Westchester County, New York, about 25 miles north of New York City. Um, And I think also I I was very much influenced by other people around me who had both a general love and a, and a biological understanding of the of the natural world, and so my teachers, my family, and friends, and others who taught, and I think that was really the origin for my love. Is this the answer? I don't know yet. Uh, I don't know that Alaska per se is. It's certainly it's certainly for me a big a big piece of the answer, um, and I expect to be involved with it for the rest of my life because I uh, in spite of uh, who whoever becomes governor and whoever succeeds that person as governor uh, these issues are not going to be solved in one administration or with by one foundation uh, but it's such a fantastic challenge and um, when I just going back quickly to the Serengeti and and Kenya if you think about How all of that could be lost, some of it's still challenged, but how much is still there for our grandchildren to see. I think that's a wonderful challenge.
0: Mr. Rockefeller, we thank you for being with us today here at the Town Hall Forum, for reminding us of the need for conscience and for care, for a balanced approach to economy and culture and environment. We thank you for reminding us of our responsibility as citizens to care for and protect and manage this last frontier, and for helping us to see more clearly that our common destiny lies with the ecosystem upon which all life itself depends. We thank you for joining us today at Westminster Town Hall Forum, and we thank you, Mr. Rockefeller.
1: Thank you very much.